Welcome to the National Academy, which obviously needs a new sound system. <laughs> and the review panel. Uh, this is our third year in collaboration. I'm Susan Shatter, the president of the National Academy. I'm going to introduce to you David Cohn, our moderator for the panel, and he will introduce the panelists. But first, I'd like to just thank our funders, the New York State Council on the Arts, the Daedalus Foundation, and the Edith and Herbert Lehman Foundation. Also, I want to thank Graeme White for the sound system, and Christine Whitmar for running everything behind the scenes. David Cohn is art critic and contributing editor at the New York Sun. He is also editor and publisher of artcritical.com. And he is the gallery director at the New York Studios School. And David, you want to introduce yes, our please. guests for tonight. Thank I you. want to, and I, of course, want to thank you, Susan Shatter, um, and, and to thank um, Dr. Annette Blaugrund, the executive director of the Academy and all her wonderful staff for making this event possible. And uh, just a point of clarification, uh, Graham White, who was thanked for the sound system, should actually be thanked for recording uh, the sessions, because um, I don't think anyone would want to take credit for the sound system, which is evidently on the blink. Um, the recordings are posted at artcritical.com slash review panel, where previous installments can be heard. Uh, in, in podcasts, and apparently many artists do enjoy listening to the uh, learned debate that takes place here while they create new works, so that's an edifying thought. Um, just to remind everybody of the format, or to introduce the format to those of you who are new here this evening, actually, if I might be so bold, who is here for the first time? Whoa. Uh, that is very gratifying and, and impressive. So let me then explain uh, what it is that we do here. I'll take that code. Uh, it's, yes. Okay. The, the review panel, we've all been to see, hopefully, uh, the exhibitions listed um, uh, uh, at, at various venues throughout town. Uh, this month we've sent you uh, uptown, downtown, and uh, somewhere in the middle. Um, to, to, see, to see various shows. We will, um, I will give a little visual reminder of what it is that we have seen with the PowerPoint presentations, after which um, the panel will just very loosely discuss, well, tightly discuss, but in a loose uh, format, uh, what it is that we've, we've seen and what we think of it and what we make of it. And occasionally there's points of disagreement, but generally, because we're all rational critics, we agree on things, which is a very... Uh, gratifying. And um, so what we do is we look at uh, each show like that. Now, after we've looked at a couple of shows, we take a little break from uh, the, the, the heat on the panel just to allow the audience to let off some steam, share some succinct comments, or address uh, questions to the panel on um, uh, what they've heard so far. Okay. And I also like to announce uh, at the beginning of the panel, because one always in the rush and the euphoria of finishing forgets to do so at the end, uh, the lineup for the next meeting, which takes place on 
April, Friday, April the 13th, uh, where, my, uh, where my guests will uh, be um, Suzanne Betka, Charlie Finch, and Katie Siegel. So put that in your calendars. And um, let me now, that my next duty, a pleasurable one, is to introduce the panelists. Uh, Donald Cuspit is one of the most uh, distinguished art critics in America, a recipient of the um, Marta Prize at the College Art Association in 1983. He's professor of uh, art history and philosophy. Uh, he's a professor at Stony Brook, part of the SUNY system, the author of numerous books. Uh, recently, Recent titles include uh, The End of Art, published by Cambridge University Press, and his uh, Critical History of 20th Century Art, which is an e-publication, uh, now complete and viewable at artnet.com. Uh, Joan Waltermarth is uh, editor-at-large at Brooklyn Rail, and she is an artist, recently exhibited at Basel. Remind me of the gallery, I'm so sorry. Gallery von Barta. The Gallery von Barta at uh, Basel is her mo most recent venue for her work. Uh, she shows regularly in Boston and New York. Uh, she is... Um, uh, assistant Professor at the I.S. Channon School of Architecture at uh, Cooper Union. And um, did I also mention she's editor-at-large at Brooklyn Rail, where her art writing frequently appears. Karen Wilkin, also one of our uh, very distinguished uh, uh, scholars and, and critics of art, is a contributing editor for art at the Hudson Review, and her criticism appears frequently in such publications as The New Criterion, The Wall Street Journal, Art in America, and uh, numerous exhibition catalogues. Her most recent project is an exhibition of uh, uh, color field painting, Color as Field, 1950 to 75, uh, which opens this uh, fall, uh, ne uh, next, this fall, this fall, uh, we're now in winter, so fall is next in November 2007 at the Denver Art Museum. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, the distinguished panel, please welcome them. And as you will have gathered from the screen, the first show that we're going to discuss is uh, David Hammonds at L&M Arts. Uh, Mr. Hammonds has had uh, quite a number of outings recently, both of... Uh, uh, historic work um, and uh, at, at various uh, uh, galleries, uh, including a very eccentric display of a gallery that wasn't authorized to show his work, uh, the, um, uh, uh, what's it called, Triple Candy in Harlem, which uh, was so frustrated at not gaining his consent to do a retrospective of his work that they showed a retrospective of a, uh, Xeroxes of the artist's file at the MoMA Library instead. Joan, uh, there's that great sonnet by Rilke where he's talking about the, 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 a, a bust of Apollo and it, 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 the, the, the sonnet ends by saying that this, this sculpture seems to say to the viewer, uh, you know, you must change your life. Uh, uh, did, did, was this a life-changing work for you, this David Hammond? No, but uh, it did give me a certain realization, <laughs> which was, it raised a question for me of whether you could denigrate uh, others without denigrating yourself. Yes. <laughs> Do you wear fur? Do I wear fur? Yeah, sometimes I wear fur. I love fur, actually. 
did, did, did you get the sense that David Hammond disapproves of fur and that that was part of this show? Or what, what, what was that? Did you feel that this was a show with a moral message, or was it uh, was the was the material brought brought out just bringing out a sensual quality? I got I, I, my feeling was it was much more of an anti-bourgeois statement than a anti-fur statement. I think the anti-fur was a. It didn't. It didn't come across to me in that way. I don't know. What did you think, Karen? Uh, well, the, when I went to the, the first floor, um, I went around. You know, saw what had been done. The interventions, as one must call them, and I thought, yeah, Peter demonstration. <laughs> so this, this is what they've been doing to people, um, and I was not particularly moved. It seemed very obvious. I think. I think all you needed was the chinchilla upstairs, which had been really attacked. You know, it had been burned, it had been really violated. And the connotations of, you know, luxury and excess of the coat and, the, and what had been done to it seemed to really have some kind of um, intensity, not to mention the smell. But, um, you know, it was a one-liner. You got it. You didn't need the four or five others downstairs, which, which suddenly aestheticized the whole thing. And you know, the following fur comes in, you know, the following coat comes in the following skins with the following things done to it. And I thought that really um, took any, any potential bite out of it. This is always one of the, the problems of being a career Dadaist, isn't it? That, um, <laughs> the, the, um, uh, yeah, one, what, what, should perhaps come across as a final statement is, is hard to then repeat. Don, did you feel that with, with Hammonds, when one sees a new body of work by him, that one has the baggage of uh, uh, his previous uh, efforts and a sense of uh, uh, what his agenda has been or might be, or were you able to sort of enjoy or appreciate this show afresh, as it were, and untrammeled. Well, let, let me sidestep directly first to say that I agree completely with what Karen said, uh, and I find myself uh, more interested in the circumstances surrounding the exhibition than the exhibition itself. Um, said to be, uh, Joan said it was anti-bourgeois, and here it is in the most ultra-bourgeois uh, gallery, one of the most upscale galleries in New York. Uh, I find it very interesting that he's making uh, a mystery about nothing. Uh, it's a sort of emperor's new clothing thing, and I would categorize Literally it as... Literally, in this case. <laughs> yes, an emperor's new clothing, yes. And I, I categorize it uh, in what Alan Capro calls post-art, uh, I don't see any aesthetic significance in it. I don't see the intensity. Of course, burned things look sort of intense. Uh, and fur evokes all kinds of associations. I found the installation rather pretentious. Um, I found the whole thing boring. I, 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 part of my job, perhaps, is to disagree with people and stimulate some debate, but there's nothing that Karen and uh, Don said that I could begin to want to disagree with, other than to say that I sort of want to um, find something better in a work by David Hammonds, because in the past he has delivered pieces that seem to have poignancy and seem to really use materials in a way that um, made one think and feel, uh, especially when he was using his own hair um, as an African-American in, in works that uh, explored 
his, the, the history and heritage um, in, in ways that were, one, one couldn't get away from some very visceral sense of the material. But here it seemed like a, a rather gratuitous and theatrical shortcut to material importance. Would you want to disagree at all, Joan? Um, I think he really missed the boat on this. And, you know, I personally found it very intense, and I was horrified when I went in there and I saw this fur with paint all over it and burned. To me, this gave me, on a visceral level, um, a very uncomfortable feeling. I didn't like it at all. I, I just thought about um, the animals that were used in the in the fur and what it meant to um, denigrate them in this way and and this for me was horrifying and I, I felt that if he was trying to make this anti-bourgeois statement it was a, as it was a cheap shot. Well, he might argue though that um, the, the the poor little uh, minks and whatever have have met their end already in in the manufacture of a bourgeois uh, fur coat. Yeah, as if that was some kind of excuse for further denigration. Well. Uh, it's a question of though where the denigration hits. If you, is it, it, he might say that the the animal's dead already, the the coat is made already, so the denigration is against the the culture that produces the coat. Notice the whole thing doesn't depend on the object; it depends on our associations, mm-hmm. what we have been told in society about fur, about PETA, uh, about the whole thing, and it's sort of old news, but it's topical. Okay, so he cashes in on something of topical. Interests, but the objects are not particularly interesting. Yes, of course, if it's fur, it's got to be visceral, okay? Mm. Uh, hair has got to be visceral. And I just wonder if being an African-American is enough to give one credibility as an artist, frankly, uh, or being uh, a Jew or being a wasp or being whatever is. I'm not sure the relevance uh, of that to the object that's presented um, so I think it's all very overrated, and I think the only reason we're paying attention to it is that it's in this very upscale gallery, frankly. Well, and he I did something in the past, fine, but that's the past. I, I think you've raised the, the really interesting question, yeah. that, that that very thin uh, installation is in that gallery. Yes. Hmm. Uh, which suggests to me that something fundamental has changed along with one of the initials. Well, he's selling for more money. That's what has changed. I understood from the gallerist that, that David Hammonds approached them in order to do this installation mm-hmm. there and was given permission by them to do the installation. And to uh, me, that, that's interesting. To me, that sort of um, underscored how lame of a gesture it was mm-hmm. if they would allow him to do something like that. Well, I, I guess go down into the meatpacking area and put him up on the streets. Well, I guess part of the effect, or I mean, I'm not even guessing, part the, the obvious, it's so, so boringly obvious that the effect is to have an haute bourgeois, uptown, Tony gallery space that's almost like a palette, it's like a, a hotel particulaire. It's, it's an unusual viewing situation, you it know, where, where one sees I'm, I'm tired of the word bourgeois. What is not bourgeois? What is not bourgeois? Don't you think the Lower East Side is bourgeois these days with the gentrification? What's not bourgeois? I what guess bourgeois? bourgeois used to mean somebody who lived in a city, a burger in the city. And then it became a term of scorn uh, with the Marxists. And yeah. then artists needed to rebel against that which they were dependent upon. So you got the so-called anti-bourgeois gesture. What is it? They're all bourgeois. Perhaps it would have been more effective than the I think Cavins is bourgeois. Yeah. I'm absolutely serious. We're epate. I think we should um, progress 
or, um, or move on. Because uh, while we can have interesting discussions about fur and the bourgeoisie, I'm afraid Mr. Hammonds is not transporting us to that place we want to be when we look at art. So um, let's decap and let's uh, deluminate. And let's. I think um, it'd be very. I just want to say one last thing. It'd be very yeah. interesting. There is the fur area on uh, between Sixth and Seventh Avenue, and uh, on Twenty Seventh Street, Twenty Eighth. It would be marvelous if it was put on the street there. I wonder what the effect on the furriers would be. That might be a good audience. Yeah. They probably want to clean it up. Yeah. <laughs> well, the PETA people may be there already, so they'll be doing the job for him. Right. So. I'm going to bunch together a couple of the painting shows. We've seen three painting shows uh, in this session, Bill Jensen, um, Odd Nerdrum, and June Leaf. Um, I think it might be interesting for us to consider Leaf and uh, Nerdrum in tangent. Different. The, the, well, I'm going to show the two together, and we'll deal with them as we deal with them. It occurred to me when I had put Nerdrum and leaf together that I could equally have had fun putting Nerdrum and Jensen together and uh, seeing these rather different ways of thinking through the possibility of apocalypse or uh, otherworldly experience. Um, Now, I'm not going to impose some reading on these two artists by insisting on thinking of them together when, of course, they are artists of enormously different sensibility and pictorial language. Um, and we have time to, th- thanks to the boringness of David Hammonds, we have time to uh, uh, devote to, to all these, to all, to all the rest of the shows that we're we're thinking about. Um, but I'm excited. At, at, I'm excited. I, I'm I'm. For me, it's it's intriguing to think through just what a diversity of options seem to be available for a painter at this stage. Uh, there's, there's always been disparate styles available, but it seems, Don, that at this historic juncture, there's just there really just isn't an accepted way of going about forming one's language, is there? And there seems to be such a, a, a an extraordinary range of options available. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with you completely. There's a whole historical range of possibilities now. Um, Nerdrum is uh, clearly going uh, back to uh, Rembrandt, at least that's his ambition, as stated. Uh, he's always said uh, if he could realize it, he'd be happy. Um, and uh, Leaf is more tenuous, more improvisational, a little quicker. I have to say I've admired both these artists and followed their work for a long time and have written about them both. To some extent, um, I like uh, Leaf's kind of flickering energy. I like the figure. I like the intimacy of the work. Uh, kind of sometimes delicate touch, sometimes fast flip. And so, she seems to me to be operating uh, within, let's call it, the improvisational mode uh, that Hal Rosenberg spoke about, but giving it a new flip, going somewhere else. I find her use of sort of the machine interesting. Um, the turning piece reminds me of Calder's, who used the first one of those things. So there is a kind of, shall we say, nostalgia there. She's mm-hmm. also engaging the issue of the female body and of aging. So I like the relationship to experience 
that is coming through and through her personal experience, even though she moves beyond just me, me, me. Okay. Um, Nerdrum, what interests me about this particular group of works uh, is the uh, real pitch black. I, I've followed his work for a long time, but I don't recall anything with such a pitch black ground to it uh, and the figure set against it. What also strikes me is there's less grotesqueness in it. Um, there's a kind of free fantasy. He's using the blonde figure that he's used before, sometimes ironically, but also soberly. Uh, I like the uh, very much Scandinavian emphasis on, on the body. Uh, there's a work whose name escapes, an artist whose name very famous in uh, Oslo, uh, whose name escapes me right now, but there's this huge monument pile of bodies, very Scandinavian kind of things in a park, and there's a whole museum devoted to his work. I recall the works, but, but not the name. So, uh, yes, these people are working in different modes. I have to say that uh, for me, finally, uh, Nerdrum is, quote, the, mo the more interesting, close quote, uh, in the sense that he's uh, trying to uh, synthesize uh, certain, let's call them, old master ideas of art uh, with uh, some sort of, uh, quote, uh, modernist sensibility and awareness of the medium, uh, certain kind of handling of the paint. So I'm very sympathetic to that. I also think it's very important uh, his revival of the figure. I don't know if it's revival, but his working with the figure, which is an old, old uh, imagery, an old, uh, uh, an old uh, and familiar uh, iconography, and I think he's putting it through new paces. That's my own sense of it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I like the way that you've identified these two artists as, as A, working within traditions, and B, working with a kind of existential urgency, yes. so that it's not, neither is neither is really seems to be really an ironist or using uh, a past language um, in a sort of deconstructive way about the language it's just a question that uh, for me um, uh, Leaf is very much in a in a, uh, a modernist tradition but also a very American tradition there's a strong sense of Americana uh, and in, in her uh, use especially of the machine you, you mentioned Calder of course and uh, um, there was a show of her, her, her machines at the Tongli Museum in, in, in Switzerland, so it's not that, that the machine aesthetic is uniquely American, but somehow it has a kind of um, uh, American vernacular feel to it. Um, and yet I have to say, Don, I, for me, um, maybe it's just a question of taste, but it seems to me that while um, Leaf is a very uh, intuitive uh, poignant artist who I really respond to. I feel she's sort of out of uh, history in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a rather nice way. Um, Nerdrum, it seems, despite not wanting to be ironic, is, is, is to me very much of an anachronist. Uh, he, uh, the, the, the reference doesn't seem to me to be to Rembrandt in the 17th century so much as to a kind of academic 19th century language. What, what language were you picking up, Karen, as, as not Nerdrum's... Uh, Origins. Well, I, I have to say that I was surprised by this show because I disliked it much less than any of the Nerdrum shows that I've seen in the past. Um, I mean, it you know probably has to do with my own phobias and what have you. But I have th those those creepy guys with the leather hats that he used to paint it used to make me want to run screaming out of the room. And the fact that these um, paintings seem to be addressing 
painterly issues and ideas about invoking space through the relationships of the scales of the figures, which I don't think were particular. I don't think he was particularly successful at this most of the time. But but the ambition seemed to be something other than um, let's see how creepy we can be. Uh, the paint handling seemed to be more of an issue. The drawing seemed to be more of an issue, and the ambiguity uh, was more uh, more of an issue than than in the past. And so that that interested me. Uh, I profoundly disliked that head. Self-portrait uh, at the beginning. You know, or the self-portrait. I mean, that's you know, it's what it is. You know, there's the big head painting with the sort of tailing off like a comet. I did feel, again, as I always do, that these paintings are big for the sake of being big rather than for any really compelling idea. They, they, they reminded me, this group reminded me, um, well, perhaps reminded me is the wrong word, but this group suggested that maybe he was thinking about Goya's uh, paintings of flying witches, and, and uh, they, they tend to be small paintings. And, mm-hmm. and part of what's wonderful about those small Goyas is they suck you into this clearly fantastic and wonderfully painted world. And the fact that you're mentally transporting yourself into this miniature or very small scale is, is part of what gives them their power. Uh, with Nerdrum, there's this big rhetorical, maybe this is why you're thinking of 19th century academicism, you know, they're machines in some sense. Uh, so I'm, I'm on the fence with these. I'm, I'm more interested in them than I expected to be, and they will, they make me more interested in what the next batch will be. Well, that's a very um, that's encouraging. Uh, surprise Joan, me. Uh, surprise me. <laughs> how would you rate the two languages in terms of empathy and, and alienation, uh, Nerdrum and, uh, and Leaf? Are you drawn to their languages? Are you, do you find their languages alienating? I think as an artist, you always you look at you look at paintings fundamentally different than critics look at paintings. You're not looking for a historical model, even though I could step in and construct a like a theoretical historical model about what I think about it. Fundamentally, I'm not approaching the paintings that way. What interested me about going and seeing these two shows was um, by looking at the work, I was able to make an, a distinction for myself between what I considered to be a painting which is dealing with emotional memories and a painting which is dealing with the psychic memories in a very deep and and ancient way. Um, So I would say June Leaf's world really uh, is filled with her own emotional reality. And that's what she's talking about with her paint and with her imagery. The places she goes, you feel like, oh, when you see these landscapes, I, I'm sitting there and I'm feeling like, oh wow, she sat here with Robert, they had a wonderful lunch, this is part of her life, and you feel that intimacy, that emotional intimacy in the paintings, where when I, I looked at Nerdum's paintings, I felt this um, grappling to come to terms with the place of our collective psyche. In other words, there was, an, and I felt like the clue was in this painting that you mentioned, Karen, with this head that was kind of flying off that signaled to me a kind of disembodied state that we are existing in now where we're separated from our 
possibility of our own perception through our senses. And he's showing us all these disembodied bodies that are floating around. So um, I, wasn't, I wasn't put off by the scale of those works. I felt like they, um, in some sense, reflected the conditions that may have given rise to that state of the disembodied bodies that are floating through that space. But to me, that confrontation with figurative painting, I'm an abstract painter, was very interesting in that it allowed me to see that there might be a distinction there between that emotional world and, and a psychic world. And that's something I had never considered before. I would just want to say that uh, I don't see anything 19th century in these works and the handling or anything of that sort. I mean, it depends on your 19th century. Uh, but if you think, let's say, of the, the female nude, if you think of Cabanot, Bouguereau, Jerome, mm -hmm. it just doesn't work, what you're saying. The handling is different. Secondly, uh, I don't think they're quite machines in the 19th century sense, and although I'm not sure that there's anything wrong with a machine in the 19th century sense. That's another discussion. Um, but it strikes me uh, that what he's doing uh, is making these large partly uh, to convey this infinite dark space. There's a sense of Gnosticism, I would say, that informs this, the, the sudden light illuminated figure in this infinite darkness, and there's some kind of tension uh, between them. I would also say his position historically, not just art historically, but uh, uh, shall we say culturally historically, is quite different than Goya's. If you think well, obviously. of... Obviously. Yeah, no, but I think this is really, really crucial because what Goya started has in some sense been mined, okay? It's been exhausted. I mean, the key work for Goya has always been for me the, uh, and I think it's really the beginning of the modern art, not Manet, which is the uh, dream, the sleep of reason produces monsters, uh, uh, work which was picked up uh, with the bats, picked up by Manet and illustrated in a print, which Baudelaire wrote a few lines for. And that's the discovery of the unconscious, the dream, okay? And uh, so those are dream, fantasy, monstrous, disturbing images. Uh, we're accustomed to that. The surrealists colonize them for art and for everybody. Uh, monsters are a dime a dozen. So in some sense, the question is no longer the, the dream monster, uh, but really to restore the dream uh, we might say the human content of the dream, and I think that's what he's parting to do. He's, it's a kind of dream imagery uh, with an, an outlayering where there are human beings who are the center of this kind of activity. Uh, so you can't uh, play with the, the strangeness or the uncanniness of the dream in the way Goya did. You have to find a new way of generating a sense of uncanniness, and I think he's struggling to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to emphasize I don't think he is the new Rembrandt, but he has, by his own statement, a sort of Rembrandt-esque inclination in the play of light and dark, and he's trying to do something else with it. Uh, he's uh, whether he works or not, whether it works or not, you know, we can we can argue about. But uh, you know, the the core of I think the visual is this kind of experience, and he's trying to create some new tension on it. We can we can argue about it. Um, well, I think we yeah. do need to argue about it because I don't think Bouguereau is the only uh, questionable 19th century painter. Uh, there's, uh, there's a whole northern European 19th century exactly. tradition, the Russian painting, mm -hmm. like uh, academic Russian painting of the 1880s and 90s. German painting, think of uh, Lieberman or early... But he doesn't Lieberman. fit into that. The handling is totally different. 
his handling has that they kind of... They said in chorus. <laughs> but the, the handling, I, to me, they look 19th century because of the, the scale and the cinematic, the proto-cinematic quality that you would never get in 17th or 18th. Uh, you'd never get in painting from Rembrandt through Goya, that, that sense of um, uh, a kind of uh, plastic finesse that is uh, very uh, late 19th century and very academic. Well, how about the Night Watchers? What could be more I, cinematic than, than uh, Caravaggio? Caravaggio or Rembrandt. Well, Caravaggio was accused by Roger Fry of having invented cinema, but uh, I think... <laughs> it's a compliment, not an accusation. I think that... Um, Rembrandt gets it from Peter Lastman, who was one of the Caravaggioski. Right. Okay, but there's a... There's a think of Georges de la Tour also with this... Well, I, I wouldn't think of Georges de la Tour and 19th century painting in the same... I'm not castigating the 19th, 19th century. century exactly. Okay, to me, it, it okay. It's, it's foolish of me to repeat that to me it looks 19th century. I don't want to take a straw poll of the audience to try and get a populist backup to my uh, uh, poorly argued through sense that it looks to be does not look, have um, does not have an old masterly feel that predates the 19th century. It may have a it may it may look to 19th century artists who in turn were looking back into, into art, further into art history. But it somehow doesn't have the feel, the sensibility of the 20th century or anything 18th century and earlier. It just seems to have like a, a very, it seems to be, it seems that you could take an odd nerdrum and drop it into Robert Rosenblum's exhibition of 1900, uh, which was looking at a whole cross-section of different kinds of artists at the turn of those two centuries. And you wouldn't say, oh my goodness, what's this early 20th century 21st century painting doing in this setting. You think, on the contrary, it would just fit in with Frank Brangwyn um, very, very comfortably. I, I, no, I, I'm really going to disagree with you. Because no, I, I think his, um, what, what Nerdum is saying in those paintings, what the content of those paintings is, is very much of the moment. I think he's Allegorical, come to yeah. something that we've never... He's found a place in a way of representing the collective human psyche right. that, that Goya was dealing with in his time in a very different way, but unlike Goya's time, at this point, we're not haunted anymore by ghosts and monsters because we don't even believe they exist. So he shows us the vacuity of that psyche that's been um, disenchanted... Are, are you saying that they're uh, a sort of? Uh, are you saying they're a joke at the expense of uh, Jung, then, or something? No. I mean, no, 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 no. I think he's doing it in all seriousness as a way to come to terms with the with the the horror of the abyss when there is nothing there. I don't. I don't see how you could think of these as anything but contemporary. Uh, there's a kind of self consciousness. There's a uh, all kinds of underlying modernist ideas about how you put a painting together, uh, they're, they're, not, they're not historicist in, in, in a way that would that, that look like he's trying to paint old master paintings. I mean, it's a totally different thing than, say, Horacio Torres Garcia's paintings, which were deliberate efforts to paint like Titian. And they end up not looking like Titian because he's a 20th century painter. But the ambition is clearly different than what's you, going you on. You didn't in the notice Americans. in the 19th century that late symbolist uh, effervescence where people dealing with monsters and uh, myth. Uh, it seemed to be a very prevalent uh, issue in late 19th century uh, painting. 
not, I'm, not argue, I'm not questioning that, but if you put these next to, say, Gustave Moreau, yes. there'd be no doubt as to which one belongs to this century and which one doesn't. So what is it that um, Nurjan is doing that, make, that gives his work a contemporaneity? I thought I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said it has to do with a modernist way of making pictures. I don't see it. Could, could you... Could you I, miss, I, miss, right, I must have the, missed the main point all of right, modernism. Take the... Take the oh, come on, David. Don't be disingenuous. Um, the, the way... All right, take the big painting with the, with the figures doing the backstroke. Mm-hmm. You know the one I mean. Yes. Um, and... The, the fact that he's almost reduced the figure to a kind of emblematic image that he then presents in a number of different sizes and arranges across this painting, which we read as being an infinite space because they are actually figures. We recognize their three-dimensionality. We assume that if their figures are small and they are in this same all-encompassing thick blackness, that that means that there's some kind of enormous space. Yes. And yet the structure of that painting is informed by everything that happened in modernism. You're talking about the fact that it's an all-over composition. Well, I'm trying to avoid saying that. Okay. Well, (laughs) maybe you've got to say that to get your point across. (laughs) I see. So, so one little catchphrase from Greenberg makes it modernist. I, d- I don't think that's helpful to me because, to me, because because there's just so many. I don't. So I don't even, can't even think of their name. There's so the many nineteenth century artists who are already using that kind of space, and and modernism seems to be pr- primarily about avoiding pictorial mystical illusionism and 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 creating something plastic and real in in a in a painting. It's extraordinary to me to to hear such a sort of uh, uh, anachronistic anachronist as, as Nurjan being talked about as emblematic of any, any kind of modernism. Existential anxiety is always anachronistic. <laughs> Unless it's the 50s. It's still here. It's still here. Let's try and think a little more about uh, Leaf, because I don't feel that... Um... I'm happy to think about June Leaf. She's, so, she's someone I've followed for a long time and who I find consistently... Interesting. It's it's. I mean, if you're going to make an analogy, I think it's it's chamber music. It's not symphonic. Um, but the intimacy and the playfulness and the, the delicacy, to use uh, Don's word, I, I I find very compelling. I was I thought the paintings in this show were actually the weakest part of the show. Uh, they they were just a little wispy for me. Uh, but I thought the machines were wonderful. Here we can call the machines. The, the, uh, the, again, the, the, the fragility of all these little gears and the little handle and, and all this had, had enormous charm. <coughs> and it was very moving. I, I like the, the little sculptural works more than the, than the paintings mm-hmm. throughout. Joan, would you, did you find the sculptures more compelling than the paintings? I... Well, I don't know that I would talk about it in terms of sculpture and painting, but more in terms of material. It seems like when she gets certain materials in her hands that you can hear her voice. And even when she paints on the tin, the paintings yeah. to me yeah, have those, a complete different were, were resonance best. than the paintings on canvas where I too felt she was a little lost. And I'm 
disturbed by the overuse of white in those paintings. I feel like it kills the color relationships to a large degree. I mean, that's something that you always look at as an artist, but um, but for me, it's a question of materials. You know, with that tin, it it does something when it gets in our hands. That's really magical. I, I love the sensibility that came across in, in in the in the the creation of those little toys that worked, and I, I enjoyed the sculptures very much. But I, I have to say, I felt that they were playing second fiddle to the painting, and I'm I'm surprised to hear the paintings uh, being uh, relegated by 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 Joan and by Karen because. Um, I, I must say that I was new to her work. I was turned on to it just for this show by, by, for, by Robert Berlin, who, who's a, a, an artist and a critic, and said, you must come to see this show. And uh, um, it just dovetailed with so many artists whose, whose work I, I love, uh, not, not all of them American. There seemed to be a lot of uh, vouillard in her touch, and it seemed to be... Um, I was also put in mind of Turner quite often in, in her attitude towards uh, landscape. It just um, uh, seemed to me an, an extraordinary sensibility at work and an artist I'd love to get to know more about. There was a beautiful show a few years ago of 50 years of her drawings that was at Edward Thorpe, mm-hmm. and there were some drawings in the show which to me were the highlight of the exhibition because she's got an incredible touch in those drawings that I feel like isn't quite translated into paintings but is translated into mm-hmm. the sculptures. Now that, that's interesting because uh, the the draw I've always loved the drawings and the, even the few that were in this show were, you know, doing something quite special, and the fact that it translates more into little bits of metal and wire, and fabric wrapped around it uh, more than in the paint. It, it, it's fascinating, but I, I couldn't agree with you more about those the paintings on tin. In fact, that whole little room became a kind of wonderful ensemble. But isn't there a danger? I mean, I, I appreciate and love her sensibility and her quirkiness and the, 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 the feeling that one has, uh, the, the folkloristic aspect of it. But I feel that if one gets too much of a material fetish with an artist like June Leaf, one can lose a sense of really quite compelling uh, vision and, and energy that's, that, that's actually, I, I think, more there in the paintings. Which, uh, I think I've, you need to see more of her drawings. Well, I saw one of her drawings, which is, which is the self-portrait, which was remarkable and exceptional and beautiful as a drawing. But um, uh, I don't really like to be told I need to see more of the drawings in order to appreciate that... No, I didn't. ...that my appreciation of the paintings is I flawed. I would suggest because you might the, enjoy seeing more of the drawings. I look forward to seeing more of the drawings. I look forward to seeing more of the sculptures. But the drawings and the sculptures, uh, uh, I, see, I saw enough to see what one can see in them. And I'm worried that, 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 that appreciating that finesse and, and delicate awkwardness might be blocking the vision that's there in the paintings as well. Well, you could. Go ahead, Joe. I don't think it's a question of fetishism here, and that's not what I was trying to suggest with the material, but just as a way of looking at her work that when she works with certain materials, her voice is able to be heard, and you understand what's going on in those paintings. You feel the 
catharsis of certain um, emotional epiphanies that she has while she's working. And that comes through, I found, in certain materials and not in others. And I've, I find that really interesting. And I think that that works for a number of artists that they're adept in a certain medium and not in another. And that, to, to call that a fetish is to take it into an arena which I don't think it belongs in with June Leaf. But somebody like Calder, I can see that his gouaches are just boring compared to the sculptures, which are just exhilarating. But I, I, I would be very sorry if June Leaf's... I think, she was, I think if there were no drawings and no sculptures, just the paintings, it would have been simply uh, as, as major a show almost. What I think is extremely interesting about the show is uh, it deals, it raises the question of the modern artist's late style. Um, and I think it's quite... Uh, Interesting that she's trying to cut loose. Um, she's not resting on her laurels for the drawings, which many people have appreciated over the years, including myself. So uh, she is indeed, quote, experimenting, close quote, with material. And I agree completely with Joan. And I like that. And she is trying to use the material, identifying with the material for a different emotional effect. Whether it always works in a certain sense doesn't matter to me. What is uh, What matters is that she's continuing a process, and uh, she's cutting loose. And it very much uh, reminds me of something that uh, Matisse said. You know, he had this operation. He was prepared to die, and he survived. Uh, and, you know, and then he said, I'm going to just do anything I want now. And, you know, he did anything he wanted. We've come to appreciate it. There were questions raised about certain things like the Bronze Chapel and Too Simple, but there he went ahead and did it, you know. And there was that very intense white there also in the Vance <laughs> Chapel. Uh, so I'm interested in an artist who, um, uh, the, the, the issue of late style, uh, that a modern artist can sustain themselves sort of breaking the presuppositions or preconceptions or Procrustean bed that he or she got himself into and, and gotten out of it while carrying along certain things. This interests me. You know, there is this cliche which I'm sure you've all heard, that the difference between a, a, quote, traditional artist and a modern artist is the uh, traditional artist has an early period in which you learn whatever there is to learn, working with a master. Then you have a middle period, you come into your own. Uh, and then you have a late period where you sort of repeat or reproduce yourself, maybe refine or go back to ideas that you had earlier neglected. With the modern artist, I'm, you've heard this, I'm sure, that you know, there's breakthrough, seven good years, and then goodbye. <laughs> or I think as, as Leo Steinberg put it uh, very nicely, and this is a direct quote, he said, it takes about three to five years now for uh, an enfant terrible to become an elder statesman. Uh, a very known remark that he made. Now, what interests me about June Leaf is um, she's not trying to, so to say, be an elder stateswoman. Uh, she's not, there's no single moment you say, this is the breakthrough you know, the avant-garde revolutionary change. She's sort of developing, and things keep shifting and changing, and it's all seriously interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, whether, you know, we can argue about the paintings or the drawings or the metal. And I find that quite unique in a modern artist. Mm -hmm. uh, she's not reproducing herself. She has certain themes that are consistent. Mm -hmm. uh, the body seems to be one, the female body. But the handling, as I think back over her work over the years, is so varied. Mm -hmm. And that variation is what interests me, that differentiation, the, the capacity to continue to differentiate, that's her creative power. And that, I think, is part of what creativity is about.
to find new variations, whether each variation clicks for everybody, somebody else or not, that's another issue. That's the strength that she has as an artist. That is a nervous energy that I really respect. Yes. yes. Great. There's a beautiful image in that show. It's in the, in the back room where she does this, um, she forms a body out of tin and the body is leaping up into the mm-hmm. air and there's this p- piece of metal, a half sphere around it. And you, you have this feeling that there, it's a free fall, you know, that the mm-hmm. figure, because it's in front of the canvas, is going to fall through this um, ring around it yeah. and there's no ground underneath. And I think that's a, a beautiful metaphor for what you're describing as her kind of MO, the way she works, is always taking that kind of risk that she's, there's no ground underneath her. Yes, I think um, she and Lee Bontecou in their mm-hmm. developments, I think, mm-hmm. are extremely emblematic of whether for a man or a woman what creativity can do without bogging down. I mean, if you think of the changes over their careers, it's quite extraordinary. And the risk they're taking, I mean, that old word risk, you know, the walking over the void, as it were, or, or exploring new possibilities, going away from where you were, I think that's quite special. Risk never gets old. Um, risk well, can be predictable also. It can I think. be. I think risk, risk can degenerate into, into effects, chance effects. Chance effects, yeah. Exactly. Let's look now at our next artist, which is uh, Tony McCall. That's Sean Kelly. Thank you. And... Of course, it's a, it's a truism of, of, of any artist that uh, uh, photographic reproduction is going to fall drastically short of any fair kind of representation of what they're doing. But with, uh, obviously, a video installation, with an installation um, oh, and projection, yeah, I hope you got it. Uh, that's more acutely the case. And um, I did, did try to see if there was a DVD available that we could paste in here, but there, there wasn't. Uh, Joan, a rather intriguing work. Um, how, how was one to savor it, do you think? Oh, I found it really difficult. Um, I, you know, conceptually, and there's a certain phenomenon that you see there that's really incredible. Um, when, you, when you have this sense of the palpability of light, but then... I found those haze machines were just like, I couldn't breathe in there. I got very claustrophobic. I found it very tedious to watch the lines moving, you know, where conceptually I could like really grasp his idea. And I was very excited to see the show of um, Anthony McCall because I knew that he had made a a film which was the inspiration for Gordon Mata Clark's conical section that's... um, the show that's up at the Whitney now, but the piece he did in Paris um, across from the Beauberg when they were building it was inspired by Anthony McCall. And so I was always curious to see it, and he's not shown that often in New York, although he has quite a a big career in Europe. But I found just physically for me that the problems of the technology overwhelmed my ability to um, perceive what was going on aesthetically. Um, I'm particularly just wanted to hear that because I, I sort of feel that um, your own work, your own art, would have perhaps placed you in some, some, some degree of sympathy with, uh, with his project uh, because of the uh, geometric and architectural components and what you Conceptually, do. yes, I'm, I'm there, but, but sensually in terms of what one perceives with the skin, with the body, with the nose, with the 
throat, you know, these things that were for me so unresolved in this um, technological um, presentation that for me it was an onslaught on the body. I was coughing after two minutes and I was just like, get me out of here. Uh, Don, did you have ENT problems with this work? Or, or? No, but I, I, I agree with uh, Joan. Uh, I think our sensibilities have something similar, but I find it was a sort of uh, technological fuss. Uh, is the way I would put it. And the technological effort didn't lead to quite the aesthetic gains, to use uh, Joan's word, aesthetic here that one might have expected. I found the uh, wall pieces predictably series, and uh, there was uh, something tedious and nostalgic about it. Um, uh, it was a sort of techno-conceptualism or something of that sort, uh, which had certain effects and so, you know, okay, it's great to see machines doing what machines do. Karen, um, I, I, I can't disagree with uh, Don and his assessment of the drawings. I didn't feel they added anything to me uh, to the experience of the projection, but the projection uh, was transporting to me, I found. Uh, I can't entirely understand, I can't even actually begin to understand um, conceptually or theoretically what the artist intended by it but I rather felt like I was in some sort of some Jesus Raphael Soto or something and that, um, that, that, that taking me into a sort of 3D experience of that and um, just as I, I, probably, I, I have to confess I never really got constructivism but I always liked it um, you know it's, I, I, so my, I have a rather amateur appreciation of what he might have been trying to do but you're a much better versed modernist than me, so tell me, what, what, what did you get from the projection? Well, not a lot, if the truth be known. Um, I mean, yeah, as, as a phenomenon, it was, it was interesting for a bit, and um, I, found it, I found it unpleasant, physically unpleasant in there as well. I didn't mm. last very long. I, I tried to. I sort of watched these things shift, and then, but I, my... Okay, you know, so this is this is clearly very ingenious, and if you look sideways at the light with the you know hazing machines, it's quite effective. But I couldn't really have cared less. And uh, I, uh, I, the the video artist uh, Mary Lucier is, is someone whom I'm very interested in, and uh, we've we've talked. You know, she's one of the pioneers of video, and we've talked about this a lot. And she said, well. Her first work, she said, she really has to describe as video as an electronic phenomenon. And she said, and thank God I got over that. <laughs> and I, I did have some of that feeling about, about this. I found the imagery, um, well, I have to re rely on Don's word, predictable. You know, working out these permutations, um, and you start here, and then you do this, 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 and then you come back, and it ends up being the same thing. Fine. Seen it once, got it, don't need to see it again. So it's the, the Apollonian forgettable compared to the Dionysian David Hammond's forgettable. <laughs> okay. It's, uh, it's a shame that for our non-painters... Something's happening to both those words. Yes. It's a shame that for both of our non-painters, we've we, uh, failed once again to come up with shows on which the, uh, there can be some passionate debate among the panel because I'm afraid I think none of us really was as enthralled as we wanted to be. Well, Mary Lucia has a big installation which is beginning tonight. Tonight, so yes. That's some, so come back in April for your next for the April thirteenth. <laughs> perhaps we'll 
will we'll, we'll treat ourselves to her. I mean, she is, but she's somebody you know dealing with a narrative and history and culture. I mean, that's a, it's a, the, a the only, thing, that has, the only thing it has in common is that it uses a machine like that. I mean, well, but a better <laughs> one than that. But uh, I mean, really. For a work that was is maybe closer to Anthony McCall, I saw recently Terrell's um, installation in London at the Foundation, and here you're working with projected light, and I found Terrell's work there actually mesmerizing. I found I could easily sit on the bench for a long time as I delved into the colors. All kinds of things started going on. I had, you know figured out a lot of stuff I'd been thinking about and just came out of there with a whole new, um, you know, the sky looked different to me. So I considered that a real success. And I and think one could also breathe there, which was a big improvement. Yeah, and you could sit down while you were looking at this very slow changing projected experience. So I, there are ways to deal with those problems. Mm-hmm. Well, somebody like Anish Kapoor makes constructions that really alter one's sense of um, where one is in space and... Uh, uh, are deeply intriguing in, in the way they're put together, which um, I, this is more intriguing as to why it's put together, not, not how it's put together. As I say, I had a, a pleasant enough experience. My, my dog was complaining about the, uh, uh, <laughs> the breathing conditions in the, inside the projection room, so we, I didn't stay as long as I had wanted to, but then I... And, and, and I'm supposed to be asthmatic, but I think perhaps we've exhausted... McCall, we should <laughs> devote our last energies to um, another painting show, this time Bill Jensen yeah. at Chime and Reed. You'll need to go a little focus. Thank you very much. Did you feel that with this, with this show, the sense of how it was placed, of, that, um, the, the relationship between canvases was important, or did you just feel it's a, a show of beautiful paintings or, or not beautiful paintings, whatever your view oh. was? Well, I, um, guess, I guess the relationship was important, but what struck me about it is what I would call its lame duck modernist painting, uh, is my thought about it. Um, there were some moments where almost the charisma that painting had were re- was restored, and the charisma of that abstraction, a certain kind of abstraction had, gestural, let's use that term broadly, had. But otherwise, it struck me as uh, sort of tending to decorative, not in the best sense, of that term, there is a more positive sense, but I don't like that word decorative anyway in that context. So I thought, well, here's something familiar which is twitching. I think that's it. <laughs> well, like a piece of soutine meat that's. Um, soutine meat is alive for me. This is sort of twitching and. It's like a death throw. I meant the actual meat, not the soutine painting. Oh, the absolute mm. meat. Uh, I, I, I think that uh, I got a sense that there's some corpse that's being animated by electro- electrodes, sort of the way, the way you, uh, you know, like frogs, you, you, you dead frogs, you move, you move their mm-hmm. things with their limbs with electrodes. So he's moving the limbs of painting, but um, it was not alive. I think uh, the patient deserves a second opinion. Uh, uh, Dr. Wilkin. Well, I find myself, for the first time this evening, really disagreeing with Don. Um, I thought it was a wildly uneven show, but I thought the good paintings were 
not just twitching. I thought they were fully alive. Um, I thought generally the, the smaller paintings for me came off better, maybe because they uh, were more, they were clearer in the way the color was used. Uh, the, the large paintings where the entire spectrum was represented in layers I found less convincing, but I thought that some of the small paintings, uh, that, some of which we saw, the, that dark ground one with the grid of lightish, color on it, the uh, St. Sebastian with that kind of strange, compressed, pinkish thing in the middle. Um, a number of paintings seem to have a kind of final in-your-face layer that pushed everything behind and made the surface a real issue. Uh, those seem to me among the most successful. Uh, the black paintings in that chapel-like installation um, I didn't think were, were quite as effective. Uh, they got better over time as your eye got to take in some of the nuance, which the digital camera apparently has no problem no. seeing um, and exaggerating. But uh, for, for me, that was it was the small the small paintings with the kind of strange palette. Um, I take Bill Jensen's work very seriously. I don't always like it, um, but he I. The conviction and the uh, energy and the, the belief that the painting matters comes through, and I'm, I'm enough of a cultural dinosaur to respond very strongly to that. So modern, modernist abstract painting is alive and well in his work? I think so, but then... Well, those, you know, are, those I, are two I divergent am, I am a, a I, you know, card-carrying cultural dinosaur, as I said. Um, uh, Joan, we, we, we're sandwiched here by two uh, contrastive opinions. I'm going to hold back, uh, but... Uh, You're being crushed between us. I, I, can hold, I, just... I think I can have Samson-like hold my own here between these, no doubt. These, these columns that are crushing in on me. But Joan, tell me, uh, Jensen... Uh, I just want to start out by saying that I've known Bill Jensen since I came to New York. He was one of the first artists that I met when I came here in the late 70s, and I followed his work for many years, so, you know, I have a great history of looking at his paintings, and I always admired the fact that he worked on this very small scale, and he, at a point when painting was really under attack, started to work on a very intimate scale paintings and, and figured out how to make that work for him and has sustained the dialogue within that uh, format. Um, I'm going to disagree with Karen about the black paintings. For me, that black paintings were really the highlight of the show. And when I walked into that black room, I was reminded of the responsibility that artists carry towards um, the people of their time to reflect the condition that they're existing in. And I felt these dark paintings really... Um, acknowledged for me, and I almost started crying when I looked at them, that the terribly dark times that we're passing through now and the very difficult moment it is for our nation. And I felt the fact that he set those dark paintings against that room of exuberant color was an acknowledgement that one could not celebrate today without acknowledging all of the people that are dying and most of the people that are dying are not dying in New York but are dying in the, in the middle part of the country in the, in, the, in the poor people in this country who are dying in the war. And for me that was all very present in the blackness and the darkness of those paintings and I don't know, I just sunk right into them and I, I felt 
really relieved and also um, for me it really showed the possibility of painting to communicate. When I was there, there were everyone who came up to me and there was you know all sorts of people I knew there I went with Dorothea and um, everyone had been there like three times or four times and was was talking about how many times they had been to that show and what it meant to them and for me that was a real um, testimony to the ability of painting to address um, these kind of needs in our time well that's a very uh, passionate eloquent statement I, I find bizarrely, though, uh, I'm not just. I, I don't. Uh, I don't know. Sort of burst the balloon of that that energy and that passion. Please but, do. But the funny thing is, actually, I, I, I have to say, I'm a card-carrying Jensenist. I, I I love his work. I think it's strong and important and good. Um, I, I read those two bodies of paintings very differently. It's interesting that dark equals dark and bright color equals cheer. Because um, actually, I was looking at kind of the other way around. Um, the, I, saw, I saw the majority of the paintings and those very strident colors, those kind of virulent oppositions of blues and reds, and the kind of almost very uh, uh, gory cell-like or um, uh, kind of structures that, that, that I, I felt I was like inside a body often looking out through these, uh, through, through sort of skins and, and veils and, and, and veins and what have you. I, I found the dark works... Uh, to be something of a relief and something rather gentle and soothing and magisterial and sort of regal. Uh, um, it seemed to be the purples of, that one associates with royalty or uh, with ecclesiastical um, uh, order. And so it's funny how one can have such contrastive uh, uh, responses to, uh, to how two people can have positive but completely diametrically opposed uh, views of, of, of one body of painting, but that I, would I guess say, is the nature of abstraction. I would say those black paintings were a relief because they acknowledged some truth that we all know that's not being acknowledged. And I mean, I was trying to voice what I thought that truth was, but I had the same sense of it being a relief to see them. Well, that's a very poetic. I like the poetry of what you're saying, Joan, but I, 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 I suspect I, I have trouble with the logic of it because it seems to be a very much of an imposition of a, a personal agenda on a body of work that can't possibly have. have an intentionality to, to back it up. I mean, Don, would you share that scepticism? <laughs> Never mind your view of Jen, Jensen, just my well, view. I have, I have uh, no fixed view of Jensen. Uh, I did. Ex- I, I agree with you that there, I agree with Karen that there's nuance of all kind. I just felt it was, and I like the intimacy. I've always liked the intimacy of his work, the smallest. But I do feel that um, there was a, a kind of pseudo-Dionysian dimension uh, to those works, whatever interesting colors were going on there, and that it had been rather familiar in many ways. It was a sort of retreading of things. And I do agree with you that there was some kind of relief in the dark ones. Mm. It was softer and all that. Um, I can't put the dark times in them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I think you're... you're Projecting something of your concern with our dark times. Uh, You've mentioned before in discussions also all the people dying and they're somewhere else, Mm -hmm. so that's very much on your mind and you're you're bringing that in here, which is fine. That's one framework (coughs) if you want to do it. I just don't think it quite clicks with these. In terms of the history of abstraction, Mm. uh, and I increasingly look at work historically, art historically, I'm not sure, again, what the gains are, as interesting as those works are. I'm just not sure where we're going. Mm. 
with them. I mean, Jensen is known. He's been working for a time. He's respected and all that. Uh, but And it's great. I'm, I'm pro-painting for sure. But I'm not sure what he has done. And I don't think anything is over in art until nobody's yeah. doing it anymore, you know. Uh, well, let's, but, let's then, 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 Don, let me take that as a challenge. Let's try and really think about Jensen in, in his time as an abstract painter, because this, whether, whether, whatever your feelings about abstract painting uh, from a historical perspective, there's no question that a lot of people are doing it, and yes. a lot of institutions and the market are taking considerable interest in it. Mm-hmm. We've just had exhibitions of Sean Scully at the mm-hmm. Met. We have a, 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 a Bryce Marden at the Modern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and just next door, we have Joan Schneider at, at uh, the Betty Cunningham Gallery. Um, lots of points of comparison mm-hmm. to try and understand whether... Um, uh, oh, excuse me, yes. And, of course, upstairs, we have a historical reassessment. There's an angry look there from the president of the National Academy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, understandably. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about current practice, though. Um, uh, Jensen, is, I mean, Karen, you're, 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 you're curating this show about colour as field from the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, so you, that's a period in time when, um, uh, you know, there's a strong sense of an avant-garde and, and a great competitiveness among abstract painters as to who is really pushing the envelope hardest. Do you think now, with artists like Marden and, and Scully and, and Jensen at work, we, should, we can look in the same way to what each is doing in the studio with a sense of which is, who is pushing the envelope hardest, or do you think that's an anachronistic way of thinking about abstract painting? I don't, th- I don't think the artists are thinking about that. No, but can uh, we? What? Should we? Um, as critics, as art lovers, should we? You know, the, this whole kind of rating thing I, f- I find uh, extremely distasteful. Uh, there, there was in in the in the glory days of Colorfield when when um, Clement Greenberg was very present. Uh, people who listened to him uh, were waiting to be told which was the painting by the artist, as if there was only one important painting that was that had been made, and you know, as if you'd pay attention to someone who'd only made one really important painting, if that was, was any interest at all. And we're, it's, it's the whole trajectory that interests me. And Is there a trajectory, though, that if you just pick those three artists, yes. and we got, we got very recent work by Marden, ending the Marden retrospective, the, yes. the Sean Scully is looking at a body of work over the last 10 years, which is still his current preoccupation, and then we got Bill Jensen's latest body of work. So those are three well, I, artists who are highly okay. considered. There are three artists whose work I've been following since I was conscious. Um, right. And there have been some very dramatic changes and uh, very logical developments in the work of all of them. I find that interesting. I also find individual works along the way extremely compelling, Mm -hmm. some more than others. And I find Marden's recent work actually much less interesting than the early work and some of the transitional work. But, you know, who knows what's going to happen next? Mm. Uh, So, I mean, I'm I'm not looking at this as a sense of, you know, who's who is you know making a life changing Mm. uh, work. I'm I'm looking at this in terms of an you know individual progression of individual artists. You know, the, the late Jean Goosen always used to say, no movements, just artists. 
And when I first heard him say this, I thought, well, what does that mean exactly? Because it's so useful to be able to lump people together. But I, and now, I, I mean, with, with increasing age, I know exactly what he's talking about. I mean, it's a group of individuals. And yes, with some distance, you can start seeing things that have to do with the time. Uh, but it's the individual evolution that interests me. Well, that's, there's, a, there's always room for individualism. Um, but I, I wonder, Joan, um, um, it's, it's intriguing to me that both Bryce Marden and Bill Jensen make overt references to uh, Asian calligraphy and um, in, in their work. Have you, have you noticed, um, I'm sure you've also noticed that, Did, what, what do you think of the, kind of, uh, the, the Zen and uh, Japanese uh, uh, citations in, in Jensen's titles? And are they enriching um, a sense of what he's doing? I didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much dark. I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't reading the checklist when I looked uh -huh. at the show. But but I will say, in terms of the argument that we have here, going about Bill Jensen and and Bryce Martin, that for me, of all those artists, Jensen is a painter where I feel like there's still something at stake there, and that's for me a criteria that I look at art. I, I ask, what's at stake with this work? And I, I feel like for Bill, there's still something at stake with that work, and I think that's why it makes it vital for other people. Is it perhaps because of their scale and vitality and 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 um, the difference between the works? I mean, because with, with Marden and Scully, for instance, um, I mean, I, I can see great individuality between each individual Sean Scully, but Nonetheless, I can, can acknowledge that one has a, a distilled, mature style in those two practitioners. Whereas in Jensen, um, sure, you see a big body of work like this, and there's, there's uh, 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 similar things going on in individual canvases, but there's, there's lots, of, um, lots of individuality in each work. And, and I think Karen pointed out the work in the show is very uneven, and the show seems to be right. quite overhung, which I think yes. yeah. one could look at that as a detriment. On the other hand, it reveals the degree, it reveals something about his process and the way he yes. works that he doesn't always get there, but he has these epiphanies, and you mm. know, with a better editor, we'd be having a different argument about mm. his work right mm. now. Yeah, Matthew Marks would not hang a show of Jensen to look like that, would he? Uh, but that's why, in a way, I was sort of interested in whether, whether Don, and that was my first question, mm -hmm. as to whether, whether there was some kind of argument in the hang, whether it was to be read as some kind of narrative. Because it seemed to me like there's the incredible Soutine exhibition, uh, which included Bill Jensen uh, over the last summer. Uh, it's, it's, it's extraordinary to me that such an architecturally beautiful gallery with such design-conscious uh, directors can can so overhang an exhibition. Right. I couldn't more passionately agree with you, uh, Joan, that he he needed an editor here. Um, Don, is I'm not going to. It's, it, uh, well, no, I agree. I agree with yeah. what what has been said. Um, I think it's interesting to refer to the Soutine exhibition. I thought Soutine's work knocked them all out of the place. <laughs> uh, myself. Uh, uh, we can analyze that in detail. I agree with Karen that the Jensen show is very uneven. Uh, I agree with Joan that indeed the process is perhaps more interesting than individual works. Um, my my general problem with it was, uh, you know, it's good to see 
painting, somebody taking painting seriously, uh, but then what? You know, and uh, I didn't feel I, I was struck with what you said. I agree completely about a consolidated style in Scully, and there isn't that in Jensen. And you see a certain kind of development and crystallization in Scully, which I find very strong. For me, he was the most—he's the most important of all those people. But that's—I can we could argue that. Just want to point out about calligraphy. It's been around and, and Oriental since the '40s. Sure. Uh, you know, it's not a new idea, and one wonders if it's become a sort of fallback position. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, of course, Asia is very trendy now, and, uh, you know, and it's important to be zen, you know, and all that. <laughs> Zippity zen. Was it a zen motorcyclist or something at one point? You know? <laughs> zen and the art of motorcycle. Yes, exactly. So, so, but, you know, it's, it's, yes, it just came out last week. Yes, it yeah. was <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's a way of making gesture more palatable? Because there was this whole period where, like, gestural painting was so um, not in the spotlight that calligraphy was sort of a new angle on it. I think it's a way of conceptually framing it, is mm-hmm. the way I'd put it. And then I would say I'd like to take a look at some Japanese uh, calligraphy comparison. What went through my mind uh, as the, when the subject came up was uh, a number of very interesting Japanese calligraphers, there was a whole school that emerged out of abstract expressionism Mm -hmm. I remember distinctly I thought they were quite terrific and uh, you know, if this is Zen, if Martin's Zen, it's just not where they were uh, you know, so that's my my issue and that's why I tend to look at these historically because frankly there's nothing unprecedented in a sense there's nothing unprecedented and then the question is, where, where is it going with what is known? Karen, do you want to pick up that challenge? Are these works precedented through <laughs> and through? Isn't everything, unless it's, unless it's so self-consciously striving for novelty? Everybody's got ancestors. I think where That's Jensen right. succeeds mm. on the precedented argument is that, for him, each of those paintings is unprecedented. Well, that's a very romantic statement, but I, I, I... What does that mean? You mean that there's nobody's done gestural work no, before? What are you saying? What I'm saying is, for him, there's no... Like, every time he resolves those paintings, I feel like his process is so open that he's trying to do something that's, for him, unprecedented. Okay, so he's, he's trying to be different, right, in terms of where he's been. I think that has more to do with the question of what's at stake in those works mm-hmm. for him. What do you how think is at stake? It. What's at stake in those yes, that's not at stake, stake yeah. in a, a, a Tony McCall insulation? Yeah. What's at or stake? a David Hammond's fur coat? I'm not sure that I can actually articulate it. I feel like I can, I can see something that's going on there, and part of it is the way that he's able to um, keep his process so open and keep, give you the feeling that each of those works he does, he hasn't done before. Mm-hmm. So they are unprecedented. It's, it's, uh, for me, it's something about the, the manner of working and the attitude he takes towards his work. I would say that uh, uh, Jensen makes romantic work, and romantic work attracts romantic criticism. But it doesn't have to have, it doesn't have, to have romantic criticism. So, yes, I can see that, that, that Jensen is about the visceral, the open, the ambiguous, the, uh, and those things which are very, uh, historically speaking, have been perceived to be romantic. But I don't think that means we have to come at them with a kind of very projecting, romantic sense of you know, a, a personal response. I think they're very interesting stylistically. 
I think um, I think there are, uh, I think there's a lot going on in them about whether the edge is completely arbitrary and it's a field that continues indefinitely, or whether they're very contained images, and that's the the, the kind of diversity that I find intriguing in them. Uh, what, intriguing as to whether it's it's really uh, thought through and intentional, or whether it's kind of arbitrary as to whether one is feels like a very self-contained image and another seems like a cropped. Uh, part of a, a bigger image that's going on. That's a very Greenbergian approach that you're taking. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. for the moment, think of Greenberg. I think Greenberg really framed the issue in a very important way, uh, even as he, I think, had a very detrimental effect on abstraction. He said at one point, and this is a fairly direct quote, um, that there were two orders of effect in art, one what he called the literal order of effects, and he felt you could talk about that. That had to do with the medium, the handling, and so forth. The pigments, as he mm -hmm. said, that went together. In a famous remark, he said he didn't think that the old masters, quote, spirituality had anything to do with anything but the way they move their pigments. And the other is what he called, and he used the language of Freud, the unconscious and preconscious order of effect. That is, we would call it the expressive order of effect. And um, he said you can't nail that down. You can't say anything about it. So he tried to dismiss it. And he says very little about that in the works he addresses. So he talks of Leger on a wave of optimistic materialism. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the expression. Uh, mm -hmm. Pollock, uh, existential pessimism. And what does that say? Nothing. Now, I think what he did is he then killed, he then killed abstract painting by getting what he called post-painterly abstractionists to filter out as much as possible the sense of unconscious, preconscious effect. Now, what I think is trying to go, Jensen is trying to go on doing is reviving painterliness. I mean, not that other people haven't done it, but bring the play and try to get these two things together. And he's also and, reviving crisis and... Yes, and I, but I'm not sure that he does it. That's, right. that's my issue. Right. But, you know, I, but I, when I, when I, or I was talking about edge, that's the language that Greenberg uses. That's why I meant that there was Greenberg, but you're, there's the other side. Oh, no, of but it. Greenberg would be programmatically concerned with whether abstract painters should paint towards the no, edge or have a centralized wait a wait That's a not what I was talking about. No not should. what I was talking about. He's, whether you agree with him or not, mm. he's not prescri he's not prescribing. That's Greenberg not, is not prescribing. Greenberg is never prescribing. It's never should. It's always, in my experience, from what I have seen, now whether the voice is authoritative, whether the person was overbearing mm -hmm. is not the issue, but he never says should. Well, the, the perceived sense in studios that he visited is often that I was, was in studios with him when he visited them. There was no should. But Greenberg had a certain path that history had to take, and I think the major example that abstract painting mm -hmm. had to take, and I think that's why he stopped, because painting didn't continue mm -hmm. to be... I think the major example of that is when he got Morris Lewis to burn his early works, as you know that story, and this was confirmed by an exhibition at the Jewish Museum a few years ago of some that had survived. And these were mm -hmm. black and white works with some Jewish relevant iconography and Holocaust, whatever you want. And Greenberg felt that was passe. And then we got the Morris Lewis we all know and admire. Nobody talks about those early works. And those that I recall seeing, and I remember writing about that show, at the I thought were quite credible. Now, why was black and white out? Why was that kind of gesture, texture in those works? Why was reference to the Holocaust in whatever way, uh, you know, out. Uh, why was uh, Lewis's identification, self-identification as a Jewish artist and the influence of that as art, why was that out? Because that didn't fit the program. Greenberg yes. didn't fit the prescription. So he didn't say, you should burn your early works. He said, Morris, you could burn your early works. <laughs> no, 
He got him to burn them. This is a well-known, well-documented story, and I think it was so shows how desperate Mars was to you know get out of Washington and come to New York. Wow, uh, and you know and. Uh, uh, you know, the fact that Greenberg didn't pick up on someone like Gene Davis, for example, who I think is important, you know, mm. uh, shows that Greenberg got increasingly narrow and it had to do with certain defensiveness of his position mm. that uh, came in. And he acknowledges much. And remember, he ended up writing, trying to write these seminars in aesthetic, go, going, which he didn't yes. complete, going, going back to this position. And he closed himself down in an entrenched position. And we I have could, to tell you, I remember going through... But, Don, we... Yeah. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. The, both, both, both of you are great authorities on Greenberg. Joan and I, I'm sure, are amateurs and interested in the subject. But uh, it's, an, it's a subject for another evening. Okay. Could, could I just bring this back to Bill Jensen? Please do. Because I think yeah. um, what uh, Joan said about uh, Bill's process and the way he thinks about what he's doing mm-hmm. is really key to, to those works. And he, he is, as Joan said... Uh, he really strives to get out of his own way and not to have a set of strategies for making a painting and to make it a, as fresh as possible for himself every time. So Whether when, it produces a good mm-hmm. painting every time is not the issue. But it's, So one it's, sees that from show to show or within a show from painting both, to painting? Both, I would because say. Because I, I thought, I mean... Um, but it depends on the editing, too. It depends on the editing. You know, there because was a it, show it, of his paper mm, works, works mm, on paper, a few years ago. At Danese. At Danese, that was very, very consistent. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that had to do with the choices that were made about what was being exhibited. I think you've raised a, a really an issue of critical methodology. So the artist says he's doing this. He wants to be unprecedented. He's not resolving. But there are the works in the gallery. I go into the gallery. I don't know the artist. As mm-hmm. you yeah. do. A lot of people go and don't know the artist. So the artist states this, uh, you know, I want to be unprecedented. I'm making a new resolution and blah, 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 and all that. So what? Yeah, I mean, that we, goes we, just so far. That goes so far. Don, that it's was, nice to know what he wants to do, but there's the product. You can not never just believe what artists say. You, you can, up and to a point. None of us are uh, up to a point. But there's the, the process, palace. there's the product. And okay. the product stands in a different way. But Actually, there's a product, but sometimes there is, there is an intentionality that's pushed, in, pushed through the work. No argument there. Sorry? No argument there, exactly. but how far do you want to go with that? Once well, it's I, out I, there, yeah. some other kinds of considerations sure. come sure. to bear on it. I, I think, though, with Jensen, I do see amazing diversity in this show. Yeah. But, but let's be honest, I mean, from a technical point of view, surely he's, he's, he's evolved certain techniques that he know will, knows will produce certain effects. Right. He can't, any more than Pollock could, really feel that he's starting ex nihilo, like with a tabula rasa. Oh, I'm rasa sure he each. doesn't. I'm sure he doesn't think that. All, no. all, but I think there are artists who work from the previous painting yes. uh, in a very specific way of picking up on something that's, that has happened and remaining alert to that. And then, um, you know, it, 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 this is a different attitude. Well, Joan, I, don't you think that that's where you really need the editor because you either have a show that makes it look as if I went from here to here to here, or you have a show that looks as if it's painted like Gerhard Richter with, well, we'll, we'll try 20 or 30 at once and see what happens. I think that the interesting argument about Jensen would be picking up on what Don said about Greenberg's effect on abstract painting, and I, I think that 
I, I mean, I don't really, I don't feel I'm qualified to to make any comment about that, but. I have a nose, and I know that that's a really important statement right there, and that the effect that Greenberg had on abstract painting was was tremendous, and that abstract painters have felt a, a great need to overcome that. So I would say that would be a much more um, fruitful direction to take the argument about Bill Jensen's work in terms of a critical or historical perspective. But having said that, I just want to say for myself as an artist, when I look at work, I, I consciously avoid bringing any kind of critical methodology to the work. And I look at the work and try to understand what terms it sets for itself and how it asks me to look at it. And that's why I bring this kind of romantic um, view to Jensen's work, because those are the terms that I read in the work and the way that I see that it asks me to look at it. Great. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we would rather intentionally run over time simply because I feel, and I'm sure you will agree with me, that it's really when we got to Bill Jensen's work that the purpose of a panel like this evening uh, really came to fruition. We've uh, had really fruitful and interesting debate about this, this artist. Now, I'm sure the audience is bursting with questions and don't feel that you have to be limited to Bill Jensen, the last of our topics we've also been considering. Um, David Hammonds, June Leaf, Odd Nerdrum, and Anthony McCall. And we very much welcome comments on any of what we've been saying about those artists. So there's a roving mic, I believe. Who's... Ah, yes, wonderful. Thank you. The young lady in black is going to bring the mic to you. And um, let's see. A lady right in the front here has a cap. But do please wait for the uh, mic to arrive. Just be a moment. Some of you are dying to go for dinner, and I quite understand that. Thank you for joining us, and good night to you. But uh, this lady in the front has a question. No, I know, but the lady in front of you has a question. A comment, rather. Comment. I'm uh, curious how you selected the artists that you did select for this panel. Okay. Um, well, that's a perfectly legitimate question. Um, uh, I consult my fellow panellists as what they feel would be interesting shows to discuss and then I completely ignore it and draw up a list no I, uh, I, we, we consult among ourselves as to what we think might be uh, good topics to discuss and then my job as moderator is to make sure there's a little diversity in terms of medium and generation and style and uh, sometimes I get it right sometimes I don't so that's how we do it uh, Comments, please, on, on what we've been discussing. It must be bursting. Yes, uh, President of the National Academy, wait for the mic, please. Well, a couple of things. First, I, uh, about Odd Nerdrum. Yes. Kept thinking of Redon the whole time. So does that put... Apparently we're not allowed to think of the 19th century, so I'm sorry. I'm, I'm backing you up. All right. Redon. Oh, Redon, yes, Redon. I did also. This yes. show particularly. Um, I, I feel I have to say something about Jensen. Um, I've, I've followed his work since the beginning, and I am very impressed with his sincerity and his romantic stance Oops. He as, means an well. artist. Yeah. as an artist. Mm -hmm. However, I ha and this is harsh, um, I get the feeling he has tried everything 
in every way to make a painting in the hopes, I feel like he's just keeps throwing things at the canvas. Uh, thick paint, thin paint, no color, too much color, no brushes, squeegees, pigment. And if, if anybody needs an editor, this guy needs an editor, but I think one of his basic problems is I don't think he can draw. And I just don't see any, um, I just see a lot of trying and a lot of sincerity. And I'm still waiting. The best show I saw was the one you mentioned, the edited works on paper show. And he does work in series where he just, and, and so I, I kind of feel for him in a way that, that he, right. he has given himself um, 100% late life permission um, for us all to see too much early, I think. Right. I just, I, well, I've tried really hard. Keep on trying, and thank you for that comment. <laughs> thank you very much. A ticking off for the president of the National Academy of Design for not enough diseño. Okay, <laughs> great. Um, uh, must be others. Yeah, who, who else would like to... Uh, share a comment, or have we just been that kind of panel that's just exhausted the topic? It, it can happen. Uh, yes, madam. I may horrify everybody here, but as far as, what is his name, Hammonds, I don't see it as odd. I see it as grandstanding. I think it's a, just a production. Ah. Uh, I don't see why anybody should go look at it. It has nothing to offer. See. You don't, you don't share the universal euphoria you sense from the panel then about, about that exhibition. Okay. All right. Good. Thank you for that. Good. Yes. Uh, further comments, perhaps? Uh, gentleman in the front row, wait for the mic. Yeah. Can you wait for the mic? I just wanted to know when the show opened. What? The Hammonds. The Hammonds show. Yes. When it's over? When it, when it opened. When it opened uh, several weeks ago, I don't have the date to hand, but um, it's still up at uh, seven L and M Arts at 78th Street, uh, just just uh, just east of Madison Avenue. Yes, Dorothea. Uh, well, Donald, you said something about um, Jensen uh, uh, about uh, which indicated progress in art, which is a point that I don't like. I don't think there is any progress in art. I think there's only changes in art. But one, as an artist, one of the things that interests me about Jensen is that he's the only contemporary artist I know that went back to Marston Hartley and looked at the way Cubism was brought over to America and, and practiced by Marston Hartley. And he took up that particular kind of structure, which is an American kind of Cubism, so that I don't think that... When I look at his work, it's so much to do with oriental calligraphy, but it, it has its feet in this sense of abstraction that occurred in America uh, around the 19, turn of the century, 1920s. Great. Um, thank you. And any other comments on, on any of the other artists we've been discussing? Yes, the lady at the back, in the middle. 
You know, when you were speaking about um, Auden Erdrum and his place in modern, I do see the work as very modern, very, you know, of this time when you were, I, I couldn't see it in an earlier, I'm not sure exactly why. Part of it is what he's saying, part of it is the space, and part of it, for some reason, that show, I, I really have always loved him, but there is a newness and a modernism in his work that I, I, I love experiencing. When you were talking about um, Karen walking into the um, Anthony McCall thing and losing your air, not being able to breathe, I felt at the uh, Bill Jensen show, I walked in and I felt physically ill, those oranges and greens, the blues, the scraping, the oldness, I mean, I felt, of the paintings. Um, it took a little, finally I got to the back room and I could breathe in the back room where the, you know, those dark black paintings and I was agreeing with, um, sort of commenting on everybody, but agreeing everything that you were saying, Karen and you, Don, and until you got to Bill Jensen, I was thinking, I wonder if you weren't really good friends with him, how you would see the work. Because looking One at an has artist... absolutely nothing to do with the other. There are people I'm deeply fond of whose work I would never want to talk about. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, 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 was, I, I got the name wrong, I'm sorry. I was actually thinking of Joan. I was thinking of Joan. Well, Joan, that's also a challenge to your... Um, you, you were very uh, open and generous in acknowledging the, the, the depth of your friendship with Jensen, but do you feel that uh, you would have the same response to the work if you, if it's uh, somebody you, from Thailand who you've never met? Uh, the reason I mentioned that is I feel like when you know an artist, um, you have insights into their work, and I didn't mean to suggest that I, you know, had was a very close friend of Bill Jensen's. I've known Bill Jensen since I came to New York and I've followed his work. And I do think that has an effect. And so for me, this kind of, it's not a hypothetical situation, it's a real situation. And that's why I've mentioned it. Yeah, great. Well, um, yes, uh, Gwen, Gwen Hardy. Oh, hello, um, yeah. I. I wasn't sure how far to get this up. Um, yeah, it just struck me as a painter, I suppose, um, in my own way, sort of, you know, analysing both the language of painting and then figuration. It just struck me as quite interesting that you have sort of... Um, a lot of the energy is around uh, Bill Jensen or Odd Nerdrum, both artists that I'm not too familiar with, but just from the conversation it just struck me that in some ways they represent a sort of within painting a kind of uh, uh, two poles in the spectrum between um, abstraction and figuration and in a way um, Odd Nerdrum would certainly personally not really I, I mean he just seems so into the human condition uh, first and foremost almost like a sort of oh something almost gothic or like operatic almost to, to the extent that I can't quite understand what the language of painting is around him. I mean, it just seems a very sort of, I don't know, like ordinary way of painting, but the whole reason for it is the sort of exaggerated emotion almost. For me, it seems very sort of heavy-handed and obvious. However, going over to somebody like Bill Jensen, then, you know, there's almost a sort of element of Go, going into this world where, well, well, well what, what is this about? You know, we know, we know what sort of nerdrum is almost sort of in an exaggerated way about the human condition. And then Bill Jensen is maybe perhaps sort of trying to resurrect the language of painting as some sort of abstract 
um, play, you know, with the language of painting itself. And the human condition is something that we all dream up with it. So I don't know, I just thought it's kind of interesting that these two painters are maybe swimming around in the room a bit for me, for me to think about. The Devil in the Deep Blue Sea. Yeah. Great. Thank you for that. And thank you, audience, for your responses. And thank you, panel, very much indeed for your hard work. Well, you handled it very well, David. Oh, thank you, Don.